Okay. You are listening to America's Home for Stadium News and Information. Stadium's USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. As frigid temperatures settle into a number of northern cities, look for some very tough weather conditions for some NFL playoff games this weekend. Is this really an advantage for teams like the Green Bay Packers? The answer comes from Jerry Tapp and the sports blog Sports on Tap. When you attend an NFL game, for the most part, you are enjoying football in state-of-the-art facilities. That's because NFL stadiums now compete for paying customers with the comforts of home. Can the NFL keep their fans in the stadium seats? We'll talk with University of Central Florida history professor emeritus Richard Crapeau, author of NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. The internet is having a profound influence on how we get tickets for stadium events and what we pay. We'll explore the changing landscape. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran believes he can hear some moving vans warming up for the possible departure of an NFL team. But first, the stadiums beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, the NFL's finance and stadium committees will meet next week to discuss the potential relocation of the Chargers from San Diego to Los Angeles. Chargers owner Dean Spanos has until January 15th to decide whether or not to exercise the option of becoming a tenant of Rams owner Stan Kroenke in Inglewood. It is believed that Spanos has been working behind the scenes seeking more money from the NFL to help him stay in San Diego. Bill and Mark will explore in depth coming up later in the program. A Florida state senator is pushing legislation that would eliminate a program to provide money for sports franchises seeking financial help to build stadiums. Republican Tom Lee says creating a pot of money for stadiums is a lousy use of taxpayer dollars. The sports development program up to this point has yet to distribute money for stadium projects, although money was sought for improvements at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, Daytona International Speedway, and Everbank Field in Jacksonville. Of the two protesters who floated from the rafters of U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis last week say that they entered the venue with game tickets and hid their climbing equipment underneath their winter clothing. Carl Zimmerman and Sean Holliday brought nylon rope and a banner into the facility to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline and specifically U.S. Bank, the stadium sponsor that issued a credit line to pipeline management. The protest occurred during the Vikings' win over the Bears last Sunday. 185 fans were displaced as security apprehended the two men who face multiple charges. And renderings were released this week of the new Rangers ballpark set to open in Arlington. Initial reaction had many comparing the new ballpark with Astros Minute Maid Park in Houston. The retractable roof stadium set to open in time for the 2020 season will be built by well-known architect HKS. 
Bill, that is the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. It is NFL playoff time, and as always happens, we are going to see some games that will be played in anything but ideal weather conditions. Lambeau Field in Green Bay would be a good example of that. It is certainly the time of year for weather to become a major factor in the outcome of games, and we were thinking a little bit about this and thought to ourselves, I'll bet you we know somebody who happens to know something about that, who may have had the same idea we did, and sure enough, Jerry Tapp, we decided we were going to go ahead and tap in with Jerry on this, with two Ps, by the way. Uh, The uh, site he has is called Sports Stats on Tap, direct to you from Racine, Wisconsin. Let's get into it and talk about extreme weather conditions. You have a wonderful article on this, a wonderful blog entry. Everybody has to read it. It's Stats on Tap. How do you define extreme weather conditions for the purpose of this analysis? Bill, I think what I did for this research is I wanted to look at the extremes and For the sake of this blog, I decided that the extremes would be games that were played in 70 degrees or above or games that were played under 20 degrees. I was more interested in kind of the cold weather, but I was also kind of interested to see if there were playoff games that were played in really warm conditions. Um, And what I found out was since the Super Bowl era back in that started in 1966, there's been 28 playoff games that have been played in temperatures under 20 degrees, and there's been a total of 14 games that were played in temperatures over 70 degrees. So that was the premise was to to just identify what those games were and then kind of see how the numbers laid out from there. Jerry, take us inside of that. What type of results did you see from teams playing in this type of condition? Well, first of all, with the uh, cold weather games, those games that were temperatures under 20, a couple things that we found out is there's actually been four games that were played in temperatures below zero. Uh, The most recent one uh, was last year, uh, the Vikings and Seahawks, And that game was played in uh, a minus six degree temperature condition. But the other games, everyone's familiar with the uh, 1967 game between the Cowboys and the Packers. We had a game in 1981 between San Diego playing at Cleveland. That was nine degrees below zero. And then in 2007, we had the Giants playing at Green Bay. That was a game that was played in one degree below zero. So those were the four games that were played under zero condition temperatures. Is it assumed, and I think many of us do assume, that teams from southern climates would have considerable difficulty playing in very cold, freezing weather? Jerry, does your research show that that is actually true? The research that I did, Bill, didn't really show that, but... What I did was I looked at those five games that the Packers, the Vikings, and the Steelers each hosted that were played under 20 degrees, and the Packers were 3-2 and two in their five games, the Vikings were 3-2, and two, and the Steelers were 4-1. and one. So of those 15 games, those three teams were 10-5, and five, which would lead you to believe that 
those uh, hosting teams that are from those cold weather cities seem to have an advantage. And that's one thing that us uh, Packer fans are looking forward to for this coming weekend as the Giants are going to have to go up to Green Bay and play. You just never know what's going to happen, but the weather conditions certainly seem to be playing in Green Bay's favor. The, the weather forecast I saw on a local TV station was that the game time temperature should be around 17 degrees, which again would be another game that would fit into the criteria that I use for these extreme condition games. Jerry, I saw something that was fascinating, and I know you want to drop by weather.com and check this out. The folks at weather.com did their own analysis regarding the most difficult places to play related to weather conditions. Buffalo is the worst. They topped the list. Cleveland and Pittsburgh are behind them, second and third, then Green Bay fourth, which is the furthest north of the outdoor stadiums now that Minnesota now has an indoor stadium. How does this jive with some of the studies that you've done related to this? Well, it's interesting, Bill, when you told me that earlier about these five cities, um, something that I had looked at was I was kind of curious of the of the 12 playoff teams uh, this year, how many of them over the past, say, five seasons had hosted games or played games under freezing conditions? And, and obviously, Buffalo and Cleveland, number one and two on the list that you just mentioned, Cleveland obviously hasn't played in too many playoff games, and Buffalo hasn't either. So we're not going to see those two teams on my list. But mm-hmm. the Packers had played in, in 14 games under 32 degrees in the last five years. That's regular season and playoff games. And the other two teams that were at the top of the list were Kansas City with nine and Pittsburgh with eight. And that would kind of jive with, again, your three, four, and five on your list. The other team that came up with a lot of, of uh, games under the – 32 degree mark and below was New England and obviously when you talk about the the weather in Boston that that can be uh, can be quite cold as well so it, it seems like Bill with your list that you gave with Buffalo Cleveland Pittsburgh Green Bay and Kansas City it kind of jives with some of the numbers that I'm showing as well. Jerry Tapp, our guest, and the site stats on tap. There's always something fresh and new to you from Racine, Wisconsin. We'll be back with more of our Stadiums USA radio show, and it comes your way here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. If you 
look at the stadiums of the modern era, particularly the stadiums where NFL teams play, you will see a combination of new state-of-the-art magnificent facilities or renovated, refurbished facilities like Lambeau Field, say, which have lost none of their luster. Uh, But the National Football League certainly has had a strong role in making that possible. As it turns out, the NFL likes to have good places to play. We're going to visit with Richard Crapeau, who is a history professor at Central Florida, UCF, And he has written a wonderful book, NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime, or as he said in a recent interview, uh, a new national obsession may be the best word for that. Richard, it really is an obsession, isn't it? It certainly is, and it's nice to be uh, talking with you, uh, Bill. We are looking at a handful of stadium situations that are issues for the league right now and which play into some of the themes that come up in your book. These are the stadiums in San Diego and Oakland, and I know you've kept a close eye on this. Uh, Based on what you've learned about the NFL, how do you think these situations are likely to play out? Well, I think it takes San Diego first. I, uh, obviously, what what happened in November is that the uh, citizens of San Diego uh, decided that they will not be subsidizing a new stadium. Uh, and that probably means that San Diego will move to Los Angeles mm-hmm. and share a facility with the Rams, uh, who, of course, have just uh, a year ago moved from St. Louis. Um, the Oakland situation is a bit different. Both San Diego and Oakland, by the way, have, in fact, money on the table that the NFL is willing to put forward to partially finance uh, new stadiums in both cities. Now, San Diego is off, I think, off the chart now. Oakland, might ha- it might happen there. Uh, and I think there are people in Oakland trying to put together uh, a stadium proposal. My guess is uh, that what will happen over the next uh, year or so uh, is that uh, Oakland will wind up uh, signing some sort of a deal in Las Vegas and we'll see um, an NFL franchise in Las Vegas sometime in the next couple of years. When an argument is made for the building of a major stadium, which has a major price mm-hmm. tag to go with it, it is often argued in terms of economic impact on the local and regional community. Does that impact still work to the degree that it's been argued? It's always been argued that that's a major thing. Uh, Most of the studies that have been done uh, by banks, by financial, by other financial organizations, by academics, by marketing people, almost all of those studies now show that it, it does not have the impact that it's supposed to have, Uh, that that's a kind of mythic business that the NFL has sold uh, to people across the board. Now, economic impact in in terms of direct measurables, uh, just it simply isn't there. And so what you will get is the NFL and, and, uh, uh, and in fact, politicians who support new stadium building will talk about uh, less tangibles. They'll talk about intangibles, uh, publicity for the city, fame for the city, uh, that it attracts more businesses to come to the city. That, by the way, doesn't seem to hold water at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's one of the things that people talk about. Uh, so these are the kinds of things uh, that um, people who want stadiums will tell you, uh, but the evidence doesn't seem to support it. 
Let's take a look forward related to stadium design now. We've mapped out what some of the issues are, what some of the competitive pressures are to get people into the seats, and we've already seen in some of the new designs an effort to make the in-stadium experience more stimulating, more similar to what you would have in a home. Uh, What do you see as the future here and maybe some new ideas regarding what we may see pop up in future stadium designs? Well, I think you're going to see more and more uh, use of in-stadium video uh, to fill those gaps that we've been talking about, to fill those time uh, those time lulls uh, that uh, essentially are built into the fabric of the game. So I think you'll see more video. I think you'll see more, perhaps more entertainment in the stands. Uh, the luxury boxes, of course, uh, are a kind of world of their own, and uh, those can be enhanced in all different kinds of boys uh, to uh, keep those uh, keep those big spenders happy it's interesting uh, to me Jerry Jones, uh, when I started working on this book, I was one of those people who, uh, and I'm sure there are hundreds and thousands across the country who mm-hmm. didn't like Jerry Jones. And I still don't in many ways. But one of the things I came away from this is, is I think, a kind of understanding that Jerry Jones is a genius uh, in terms of financing stadiums, of, of uh, enhancing his his income, of paying for all the problems uh, – paying for for all of these things that have to be paid for without having to go repeatedly to the public trough. Uh, He also understands that who his basic in-stadium audience is. And he said at one point before the opening of uh, what is now called uh, uh, the Jerry Dome, um, before the opening of that, he once said, you know, he said, most of our fans will never come inside this place. Mm -hmm. Most of the fans can't afford it. Most of our fans will only enjoy this stadium and this experience vicariously through television. Uh, and and that's, I think, important to sort of keep in mind going forward. Who are the fans that go to the stadium? Who are the fans who watch at home? And the fans who are at the stadium are, in fact, big money people, many of them. Now, I know that's not true of all of them, but it's certainly true of a large number of them. And so you want to enhance that their experience with luxury, with things that uh, you, you that you simply can't get other places. And then you have the you have that group of fans who are ardent fans, not wealthy, but in fact wealthy enough to come to the games. And you want to keep their experience uh, a good one, and that is done by uh, providing the kinds of uh, the kinds of facilities for tailgating, providing for, as I mentioned before, good video enhancement within the stadium itself, uh, comfortable seating, good sight lines, all of these kinds of things. Uh, And then other things in the stadium that will occupy people. In recent years, been to a minor league baseball game. Uh, Yes, I have. But minor league baseball has dealt with this issue, Hmm. how to get people to come out. Well, you don't get them to come out to the game. And if you go through a minor league stadium, you'll see a big crowd. Most of the fans will not be watching the game. Many of the fans will not even know who the participants are uh, because there's all kinds of other things going on to distract them and to entertain them in addition uh, to the baseball game. Hmm. And I think we'll see more and more and more of that uh, in the NFL as well. 
Well, Richard, it's wonderful to visit on this. You have a great book, and I would say a must-read for anybody who wants to get into the plumbing, the real story of the NFL. Uh, This is a great way to do it. NFL football, a history of America's new national pastime. Richard Crapeau, professor of history emeritus at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, as he well points out now, the second largest university in America. Richard, thank you so much for the visit. Thank you, Bill, very much. A pleasure. Now, when we return, we will be visiting with Mark Medorn. We'll go to the water cooler and find out what's going on as we talk shop. That is next, coming your way on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Time to talk shop once again. We examine the week's stadium headlines, and for that, we welcome in Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. Now, if you didn't already know, let's inform you that Stadiums USA is the preeminent source for stadium news and information. Also, you can listen to the podcast of this program. Test your stadium knowledge at our quiz site. Hopefully, you won't bomb out like I do every week. And <laughs> everything else is available for you at Stadiums USA. USA.com. All right, Mark. Well, they're not laughing in San Diego. I can tell you that they can hear the clock ticking, and it is ticking more and more loudly on whether the Los Angeles Chargers become a reality or will they stay in San Diego. And we've talked a lot about this. What is the latest on it? There's a lot of news that's going to come out in the next week, Bill. The NFL's option to move to L.A. uh, for the Chargers must be exercised by January 15th. But prior to the option deadline, two NFL committees will meet to discuss the pressing issues facing the league regarding the two venues that are in question, both Oakland and San Diego. Here's the problem in San Diego. Money, financing. The Chargers and the NFL are short of what is needed to complete the task. San Diego State is ready to kick in about 100 mil. The city offered 200 million, the county about 75 million. That leaves a gap of about 175 million. That's still a lot of money, even for NFL guys. One possibility, and this is a new discussion, is that Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Rams, would kick in the difference, the 175 million. He would just write a check for the $175 million mm-hmm. to get the Chargers to stay in San Diego. Mm-hmm. That way, he would be alone in L.A., not having to share the market with the Chargers. And that's an interesting possibility. Stan Kroenke can easily write a check for $175 million. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it's in his cup holders in yeah. his car. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> if the Chargers do come to L.A. and play at Kroenke World, he makes money from that. That's 10 additional games in his stadium. Mm-hmm. But – 
Another problem is the $200 million of city money, which the city has tentatively agreed to, still has to go through the voting procedure. And we noted the last time they went to a vote, they couldn't even get uh, more than 43% of the voters to agree. So yeah. that could be a problem. Timing is also an issue, and that if it were to come up for a vote, uh, it wouldn't be voted on until 2018. So the stadium construction would be a long ways away. So there's a nightmare going on here, and it looks like the Chargers are caught in the middle of it. There is a possibility, though, the Chargers could play in L.A. while they're developing their plans in San Diego and just use L.A. as a stopgap and then move back to San Diego later. Dean Spanos, the owner of the Chargers, has other issues, too. They're not very good. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he's got to deal with the football aspect of things as well. Interesting turn of events. Maybe there could be something there to the idea of playing in L.A. as a stopgap measure. But still, what concerns me is that vote. The vote says that the people of San Diego, if they're going to have an NFL team, they want it on the cheap. And I don't know if they can get it on the cheap. Mark, let's recap the recent bowl season. One consistent across the board was empty seats. That was at any number of games. But still, when you break it down, there were very few empty seats when it came to television. And uh, I think that has a big say. How does the financial success issue play out here? Well, every year we see an increase in the number of college football bowl games. The new world of bowls is driven by broadcast television. That's mm -hmm. the whole story. Yeah. People are watching the bowl games at home, regardless of the participants. Live football dominates the TV ratings. Every bowl game through December 23rd was in the top six cable sports ratings for the day. Most bowls drew well over a million viewers. Hmm. Uh, I was at two bowl games, both at the Camping World Stadium in Orlando. The first game I attended, the Auto Nation Cure Bowl, the upper decks weren't even open. They had didn't allow any fans in the upper decks at all, mm -hmm. and they did not fill the lower bowl. The Russell Athletic Bowl, which was Miami versus West Virginia, two high-profile teams and one from Florida, uh, they only opened one of the upper deck seating areas. The West Stands uh, upper deck was not in use. So there were smaller crowds than what you'd expect. And as long as the TV ratings continue to grow and show strength, bowl games will be less concerned about those attendance numbers. Mark, here's a story that we visited before. It was pretty ugly the first time we looked at it, and here it is again. It appears that the Arizona Diamondbacks want out of their lease at Chase Field. This came up earlier as an issue, and uh, it looks like they're going to go ahead and try another maneuver to get out of that lease. What's the story? Well, the Arizona Diamondbacks dispute with Maricopa County regarding Chase Field has escalated to the filing of lawsuit by the D-backs. The issue here is $135 million in Chase Field improvements that the team claims are necessary. The Diamondbacks have a lease until 2028. That's a long time. And the contract prevents the team from talking with outside groups till 2024. The Diamondbacks have made a number of attempts to resolve this issue over the past two years, but those attempts may be uh, the precursor of trying to get out of the lease. The county signed a deal to sell the facility to private investors, but the deal fell through last summer. It couldn't be completed because of a failure to reach agreement with the team and the investors. Long term, I think the Diamondbacks would like to have their own stadium, and they would like it in a different part of Phoenix. Have the Diamondbacks at any time been able to say exactly what the problems are with that stadium? 
I have never seen anything in writing that uh, pointed out what the problems are. And $135 million goes a long way in fixing anything inside that ballpark. Yeah. You and I think have both been in there, and that's a great facility. I can't see where $135 million in improvements would go, but um, I'm sure the Diamondbacks have a plan. And uh, they're pretty serious about it if they went to the lawsuit stage. Time to roll back the clock, Mark. Let's get in the Wayback Machine and take a look at some dates in stadium and ballpark history. What do you have? I have 1911. The Brooklyn Dodgers president, Charles Ebbets, announced his purchase of grounds to build a new concrete and steel stadium to seat 30,000. Ebbets Field would open in Brooklyn in April of 1913. 1955, Georgia Tech defeats Kentucky in college basketball, snapping the Wildcats' 130-game home court winning streak. It took place at Kentucky's Memorial Coliseum, which was nicknamed the house that Rupp built. (laughs) Kentucky's all-time record at the Memorial Coliseum was 307 and 38. (laughs) This week in 1988, 38,000 watched the Pistons and the Bulls Battle at the Silverdome in Detroit. That's a big crowd. Oh, yes. Ninth largest crowd in NBA history. Bill, tell us about the Silverdome. Yeah, I I do remember specifically, and of course I did some large games like that prior to the particular game you're talking about, but I do remember Johnny Kerr and I sitting at courtside and Johnny pulled out a a paper napkin and he threw it in the air and the uh, breeze in there blew it about a foot and a half. I didn't realize that, but there actually was kind of a continuous breeze in there. And I'm sure that's part of the reason they uh, wanted to get out of there. So if you played football in there, you could pick the end uh, with the wind. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's like they used to say about the Astrodome. You know, they'd say the Astrodome had a continuous breeze of one mile an hour, and I think that's kind of what we had here with this one. (laughs) Now it's time to test your stadium knowledge. One of your favorite segments, Bill. Oh, yes. And here we go. The largest single-game NFL attendance record was set at this stadium. Can you name it? Was Mm -hmm. it AT&T Stadium in Dallas? Mm-hmm. The Rose Bowl in Pasadena, mm-hmm. Azteca Stadium in Mexico City, or Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? Oh, boy. Well, I can't speak to Azteca Stadium in Mexico City. My guess is that it's the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. I remember a few years back when the NFL was playing in there, they did have some awfully large crowds. An excellent guess. <laughs> But incorrect. <laughs> it's kind of a trick question. Azteca Stadium is actually the correct answer in Mexico City. Really? They drew 112,376 for a Cowboys Oilers exhibition game in 1994. Well, that's the story. Mark, thank you. We will see you next week. Enjoy the new year, Bill. All right. And you too, Mark. Mark Madoran, We Talk Shop. Coming up now. How do you get tickets to see your team? We examine the changing landscape on the sports ticket industry. That is next, right here on SB Nation Radio.
The purchase of tickets for sporting events is becoming a more complex landscape by the hour. A company by the name of SeatGeek would like to help you with that. They are a company which aggregates various ticket prices and displays them through their site, SeatGeek.com. We're going to visit with one of their analysts, Connor Gregoire, who joins us from New York via digital audio. It used to be many years ago ago that you just simply purchased a ticket for an event that you wanted to attend. The ticket price that you paid was the price that was set by the team. It was relatively simple in those days. It is our new technology that has allowed this approach to really extend way out. Uh, How has that impacted uh, how tickets move and the prices that we're actually seeing for them? It's fascinating. It really is. You know, even 15, 20 years ago, the way that you purchased a ticket on the secondary market. And so this is, you know, getting past that stage where it was really only the box office was, was the one place you went to get a ticket. Um, and if it was sold out, you, you probably weren't going. But, you know, 15, 20 years ago, if you wanted to buy a ticket from a ticket broker, you would call them up. You might go to the yellow pages and find a, a local ticket broker, call them up, place an order over the phone. There might be facts involved in, you know, taking care of the paperwork around your order. Then we had the advent of the Internet and, and sites like StubHub, uh, you know, pioneered the online secondary ticket marketplace. And that was a huge step forward in and of itself in that you went from this very, you know, offline personal interaction with the, uh, you know, folks you were buying your ticket from on the secondary market to, you know, being able to get online and without speaking to anybody and within a matter of minutes, uh, you know, get online and and buy a, a ticket to an event. And now you can load up your smartphone, go to the SeatGeek app or, or others like it, and within 30 seconds have you know, decided you want to go to an event and find a ticket and pay $5, $10 for a ticket to some events, you know, some baseball games. Nowadays, you can find very cheap tickets the day of the game. So you can at 6 o'clock decide, oh, I want to go to the, the 7 o'clock start tonight, load up the SeatGeek app buy a $5 ticket in the bleachers, have it delivered as a barcode on your phone, and walk right in to the stadium. So what this really is, is a mechanism, in effect, uh, an industry that has been built up around the dynamic value of ticket, if you will. Can you speak to what we're referring to when we talk about the dynamic value of a ticket from minute to minute? Exactly. I mean, tickets... And ticket prices really act a lot like the stock market. The price of a ticket, as you were saying earlier, used to be set in stone. There was a face value on the ticket, and the price you paid you know, never fluctuated from that printed price. Nowadays, you might have a, a ticket in your hand that has a face value printed on it of $50 per se, and you might have paid $10 for that ticket in some instances, or you might have paid hundreds of dollars for it um, based on that tickets market value. And the secondary market, the online secondary market has allowed for a, a true marketplace. And you know, teams have rather slowly, although they're they're much closer now to being in line with you know market prices, they've sort of slowly adjusted to this idea of dynamic ticket pricing. So you might see a, one ticket listed in you know the bleachers for $20 the day before a game. And then if you check uh, you know, the following afternoon, it's down to 15 or $10. And, and normally that's what we see is that prices for, uh, you know, sporting events and concerts tend to fall as you get closer to, to game time. And it makes sense because there's more pressure on the seller to get rid of his ticket 
at whatever price he can convince a buyer to pay as you get closer to the time when that ticket's really no longer worth anything. It, it has an expiration date on it. Uh, but yeah, teams have started now to you know, do the same thing and mimic the secondary market or try to do that by having ticket prices at the box office that fluctuate from day to day. And, you know, if the Cubs know that John Lester is scheduled to pitch all of a sudden on a given day, they might jack up the ticket prices on their sites and at their box office by a few dollars. Likewise, if they see a forecast for rain coming over the weekend, they may lower their ticket prices a bit to incentivize folks to, to purchase them, knowing that demand is going to be a bit lower because of the weather. So there's all kinds of inputs that teams are paying attention to, and the secondary market's one of them. I think teams are tracking how prices for their tickets are moving on the secondary market to see, are we over or undercharging uh, you know, for seats to our, our events? Let's say I'm going to go ahead and make a trip to Denver, and I want to go ahead and take in a Colorado Rockies game. What advice would you give as I go ahead and I think about a ticket purchase for a game? Yeah, so there, there's a few things I'd recommend. Number one, you have to shop around a little bit. You, you got to go to the team and find out what's available from the team, because there are instances when face values at the box office are lower than what's being charged on the secondary market. So I'd go to the, in this Colorado Rockies example, I'd go to Rockies.com and I'd see, you know, what's available from the team. I'd then go to the secondary market, go to SeatGeek um, and compare prices across sections and see how they compare to face value, if they're above or below. I definitely would not purchase my ticket until maybe the week before the game. That That's the number one tip I'd have for you if you're planning a trip is, it's not the same as as buying your airfare or reserving a hotel where by purchasing in advance, you're likely saving money because the market's likely to go up uh, you know, the closer you get to trying to book your, your flights and book your hotels. Ticket prices are going to move in the opposite direction. Uh, there's going to be plenty of inventory available and sellers are going to be stressed to get rid of their inventory um, you know, in those couple of days before the game. Well, Connor, it's a fascinating landscape and it has changed so dramatically. It's incredible. It's great to visit with you and talk about this. Continued success with uh, SeatGeek.com. Thanks very much, Bill. Great uh, great being on the show and look forward to hopefully being back sometime. Yeah, absolutely. We will invite you back. Connor Gregoire is a communications analyst for SeatGeek. And check out the website. You will find out about this world of dynamic pricing. And uh, you might find yourself a deal on a ticket here or there as well. Bill Hazen saying, be sure to join us next week. In the meantime, stay tuned. We have a full day of sports coverage. It'll be coming your way next right here on SB Nation Radio.